just want to send out a quick reminder to my friends in England, Wales, and in Switzerland that I'll be heading your way in less than two weeks. I'll be spending most of next month touring over there. And you can see those dates at otisgibbs.com. And this weekend, I'll be heading to Maryville, Tennessee to open for Billy Joe Shaver at the Shed. I'm looking forward to seeing my buddies there at the Shed. It's a Harley Davidson dealership. And they actually have a suit that belonged to Evil Knievel with all the stars and stripes all over it that he used to jump over cars and stuff while he was wearing. It's a little bit small for me, but I'm going to do my best to try to squeeze into it. This is Otis Gibbs, and you're listening to Thanks for Giving a Damn. I'm sitting here in my living room in East Nashville. This is a personal journal. This is a bit of an experiment. I like to say right up front that I haven't the slightest idea what I'm doing, but I decided to do it anyway. And this show was founded with the idea that there are only two people in art that matter. There's a creative individual and the person experiencing it. And everything else is an artificial filter. This is a way for me to share things with you guys without any filters whatsoever. My guest this week is Ian Kraft. Ian is a singer and a songwriter and a multi-instrumentalist who plays in a band called The Hallen Brothers. And you can find out everything you need to know about The Hallen Brothers at thehallenbrothers.com. I first met The Hallen Brothers probably five or six years ago when my buddy Chet O'Keefe took me fishing in some uh, farm pond outside of Nashville. The Howland Brothers were there, and it's a good way to meet people, you know, just fishing. And they're really, really nice guys. But I would, st- I started seeing these guys playing everywhere, all over Nashville. Wherever there was a gig, these guys were always there playing. You know, it's really easy to root for them. They scratched and clawed and earned every little bit of everything that they have. And it's good to see good things happening for them. They're very, very nice guys. And Ian came over to my house, and uh, we sat down in my living room. And then afterwards, you know, we chatted for quite a while. Afterwards, we stood out on the porch and, and talked for a little bit. Just a really, really good guy. I hope you guys enjoyed this as much as I did. Here's Ian Kraft. Yeah, we all met up uh, around, I guess it was 2001 or 2000 or something like that up in Ithaca, New York. Um, I had gone to school at OCC, which is up in Syracuse, for a couple years, and then transferred down and uh, started playing steel pan a lot. I was a percussion major, you know, so I played a lot of marimba and steel pan. And um, Jared, who plays the guitar, and Ben, who plays bass, were both uh, recording majors and classical guitar majors. And so uh, our buddy Dom, who now plays in Wooden Wire out of Austin, he's an awesome guy, one of my best friends, we had a steel band called Panigma. And we were like recording our little demo because like the drummer who led it was like business major and like, you know, it was like the most like aggressive I'd ever been in a band as far as like doing all the like we had a bio that like had our name in bold every time it said our name and like crazy things like like way, way further than what I would have done. And but anyways, I met Jared. He was recording us in that steel pan thing. So we met and we started hanging out and playing like folk music and uh he tried to teach me some jazz guitar and I couldn't do it. And so like, we like backed back off to like folk music and, you know, and uh, eventually Ben started coming down and Ben loved the dead. And 
And I knew Ben is the guy that would like play in the there was like a cafe like kind of like a cafeteria pub place that you could go like if you didn't have the meal plan you go and buy your lunch and uh had a little stage and and Ben was like the guy I knew from like he would go down and play the piano and play like super silly shit like uh you know like children's songs and like really funny like melodies just to get to see if people would like pay any attention to him so I knew him as this like really cool unique guy and then he started coming down to hang out and uh we'd all just started playing like dead tunes and getting into old in the way and getting into all that kind of stuff. And, uh, and then we, uh, we left me and Jared went to Nashville in about Oh five and uh, Ben moved down later and he'd been doing a lot of sound work. And, and when he moved down, he did, he went out on the road with like Avenue Q and rock of ages. And he was doing like front of house for these like, you know, big like national touring acts. And then, uh, and, and then he came back three years ago and started playing full-time bass with us, but has been in Nashville pretty much the whole time. And, we got our name actually from Ben's Ben and Jared's teacher. His name is Pablo Cohen. He's an Argentinian guy and sweetest guy ever. And uh, he has a really thick Argentinian accent, you know. And we played some bluegrass tunes at Ben's senior recital. It was down in like the Unitarian Church in Ithaca, a super chill like spot. And we played a song I wrote called Irene and a song that Jay wrote called Off the Mountain. And they both had three part high bluegrass style harmonies. And, and that's how he ended his whole recital. And we went back into the green room afterwards and Pablo. He was like, I hear these music, and I say to myself, who are these guys? The Howling Brothers? And we were all cracking up. We were like, oh, my God, that's so awesome. So we like took that name, you know, and that's how we became the Howling Brothers. Yeah, well, when we first got here, we didn't know what we would do, so we just tried to find any job we could, and eventually we got hooked up with a contractor, and we started painting houses for him, and then we realized it was easy to you didn't have to go through a contractor. So we started getting independent painting gigs and doing anything we could construction and painting. And um, we were pretty terrible at it. You know, we like really didn't give a shit about it. And, you know, and like, but so we were doing that. And then uh, we met uh, Adrian from down at Layla's and uh, buddy who she was with at that time and uh, just became really good friends. And then uh, pretty quickly got into Layla's and started playing like Tuesday and Thursday afternoons for like two hours, like at one or something, one to three or something, you know, no one was ever there. So that was like our introduction to Broadway. It was like that, like playing to no one, but being totally stoked that we were playing in Nashville, you know, and then eventually evolved to like, we were playing late night slots and playing like, you know, between Broadway and other things in Franklin we picked up, we'd be playing like eight gigs usually between like Wednesday to Sunday, we would play eight shows and so we were, you know, ki- like kicking our asses, just trying to like make money. And all we would usually end up making is like, you know, in a great week we'd make three hundred a man, you know, <laughs> and which is not a terrible living. But I mean, I'm talking we'd we'd have played like, you know, hours and hours, like five, like at least twenty, twenty five, thirty hours of music, you know, which is a lot for you know, for not much money, you know. Those are typically four-hour sets down on Broadway. Exactly, yeah. And often, like, some days we would play, we would play Layla's, The Wheel, Layla's, as as us, then as a country band, you know, later on. So that's like, and I know a lot of people that do it, and it's just, that just drains every ounce of what you have life in you, you know. You play 12 hours down there. Well, whenever I hear some loudmouth wanting to complain about lazy musicians, I wish that I could drag them down to Broadway yeah. and put an instrument on them and let yeah. them find out how, how it actually is. Seriously, yeah. It is hilarious. Like, there's definitely a perception, even when we're on the road, you know, and, and close friends of ours, like, oh, you guys have such an easy life. 
I'm like, hell yeah, come out. Come out for one tour and see how tired you are and how like hungry and tired and just like everything. Cause it's like like I was just talking with my friend, it's not it's not our job that we dislike. It's everything around the job. You know what I mean? Like if I could just play m- music for two hours a night, I would be in heaven. But it's like driving fifteen hours to get to that gig. Having no sleep, you know, no time to eat, do a radio thing, go over to, you know, like, it's all that little stuff that, you know, like, it is tough, man. It is hard work. You know, people don't get it. They think it's like a a lifelong party. And maybe for, like, you know, Toby Keith, I keep saying that name. I don't know why. Like, Brad Paisley or, like, one of those guys, maybe it's like a party. But, you know, I think for 85% of musicians, it's like, it's it's just as hard as an office job, man. It's just different, you know. Uh, we met Brandon over at our uh, friend Buddy Jackson's house. We were just hanging out. We do a lot of old time picking over there. He lives over uh, off of Ackland and over near the basement. He's an artist. He does like sculpture and paintings. And but anyways, yeah, we were just hanging out, a little old time party, and we were playing. And we had like the wash tub bass out. And we were just jamming old time, and and he was like floored by the the wash tub. Like he couldn't have give a shit of anything else, but. The wash tub, he was like fascinated by it. And so he like, after everyone left, he kind of like started messing with it himself, you know? And uh, then he started recording Corey Chisel's record. Um, and he called Buddy and he was like, man, I need some guys that can play a ton of instruments. And uh, so he got a hold of me and Jared. Me and Jared went in and recorded on it. For like the month of November, we recorded on Corey's record over at Welcome to 1979. And just like uh, getting to hang out with him and, and chill. And we didn't even do a ton on that record. We did like, you know, I played a bunch of crazy stuff. Like I played everything from flute to steel pan to like just anything in between djembe and um, just whatever they needed, you know. And uh, but just our vibe, hanging out and chilling with Brendan. Like even on the days that he didn't need us, he's like, "No, I want you here. I want you here in the studio just to be around," you know. And so we became like fast friends. And he was like, "I'm gonna produce your next record." And like we thought for sure he was just busting our balls, you know. And then sure enough, like his manager got a hold of us, and she was like, "When can we go in the studio?" And it was like it was like on before we even like realized it wasn't a joke, you know. Like we were like, "Holy shit!" I guess we should, you know, get songs together. And the cool thing about it was that, you know, I we had picked out all these tunes. We we're like, "Awesome! We'll use all these tunes for this record." And we came to Brendan. We had dinner with him one night, and he's like, "No, throw all that out. Write everything right now." And so we were like, "Oh, <laughs> okay." You know, like changed our perspective because we were going in in like six days, you know, or seven days or something. So we did. We wrote that whole record, like, and it was like such a burst of like awesome excitement, you know. Like we were like our first record deal, Brendan Benson, you know. He's like, I want you to be creative and write out everything, and so it was like it was a crazy exciting experience. It was an awesome day. Brendan Benson, who produced our records, was uh, supposed to write with him that day. But his publisher, they were like gonna have a writing date. And he was like, I'm in the studio with Howlin' Brothers making this record howl, and you should come over. And so he did. He, like, rolled in and uh, just hung out, and he was super cool. Like, we just had all these, uh, can I tell you, like, X-rated stuff as well? Yeah. Just cut it out. Yeah. So, like, uh, he gets there, and he's, like, talking about the Almond Brothers, you know, and we're like, hell yeah. And we're all kind of in awe of him. Even Brendan, like, we're all just kind of, like, awed by him. And uh, Ben was, like, breaking up some herb on the on the thing, and he's like... He was like, yeah, in 66, I was playing a gig with the, is that weed? 
He just like <laughs> right in the middle of his like conversation. He like he stopped turned and like said that. And we were like, oh shit, yeah. It's like it was so. He was like, no, 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 I'm okay. And then like one minute later, he's like, perhaps I better take some. You know, like he was cool as shit, man. And so we just ended up chilling and got like real close and friendly. And and he recorded on Big Time that song. And and the that same day, I made uh, shish kebabs. I was like cooking out back on the deck and the. I was like talking to the girl I was dating at the time. She was like yelling at me and I was like cooking in the dark and it was like chicken and steak and like other shit on there, you know, and and I undercooked the chicken. <laughs> and so like I bring it in, I'm like certain it's done because I tested a bunch of pieces and it was done, you know, and like we get down to the dinner table and it's me, Warren Haynes, Brendan Benson, and then the rest of our the crew that was there. And I opened up the first piece down there and it was pink. It was like almost bloody pink, and I was like, "Oh shit!" I was like, "The chicken's not done." And Brandon is like a freaking germaphobe. Like, you know, he takes the lettuce and like washes it in bleach. You know what I mean? Like, he doesn't just like rinse things. Like, and so he like freaks out. But Warren's like, "Who who cooked this?" And I was like, "I did, man. I'm so sorry." And he's like, "It's delicious. Thank you very much." And that's all he said about it. And then I was like, "Well, yeah, all right. Like, fuck yeah. You know, like it's not that big a deal." Yeah, Sun Studio was sick. It was, we got to go and do. I don't know how it came about. I guess they invite you or something. I'm not exactly sure of the detail, but we were invited to do a session, and uh, so we went and they give you like the last tour of the day, which only takes like three minutes because they just like <laughs> you know you walk upstairs and then down and they're like, well that was the tour. Then everyone leaves. It was cool to be part of the tour group because you know you feel like somewhat special because like they make everyone leave and lock the door, and then like you can go in like the like diner and like eat snacks and like drink coffee and it's like that point it's like it's like the old days you know it's just you're chilling in the studio and and it was awesome we got to do like seven songs or something like that and it was in june so it was like hot as hell and there's no ac in there you know and also they film it for pbs so there was like six camera people like right in our faces and it was hot as hell and in that little room you know but it was magical, man. Like, I, anytime people ask me about it, I, like, swear that, like, you can feel spirits coming out of the walls. Like, there's just so much history in that room. And, like, I always love that movie, Great Balls of Fire, you know? <laughs> and, like, I always, like, think of the scenes, like, where they show sun, you know? And, like, it's exactly like that. Like, when you're in the recording room, look out the office and that sign that says open or whatever, it's sun studio or whatever. It's, like, oh, man, it just gave me chills to know that I was, like, sitting right in there. And it was great. We got, do you know that guy, Matt Ross Sprang? He was the one that's like, it's really his like baby, you know, and he's like all about the mics and like, you know, doing it like Sam Phillips would have. And he joked with us that he's going to come up with this app for iPhone that's like the Sun Studio app. And it'll just be an app of Sam Phillips voice. And like, it'll be like you go to try and do anything. It'll have all these options. And anytime you hit an option, it'll just be Sam Phillips voice. And he'll be like, move the microphone. You know, instead of trying to like EQ it or do some crazy shit, he'll just be like, you know, move the damn mic, you know. <laughs> so that was cool, you know. They said that they would get like all their sounds would be based off the drum set and they would just move the mic until the drums were the correct mix and the vocals and everything could sit on top of the drums. That's all they would do. Like, there was no, you know, crazy technical stuff. They would just put the mic in the right place. And, and that's all stuff that Cowboy Jack sorted out years ago yeah. with uh, Sam Phillips. And yeah. I went to Sun about 10, 12 years ago, and I was part of a big tour group. And I look over to my left, and uh, Kenny Lovelace was uh, just in the group, and nobody had a slice idea who he was. Huh. But he played guitar with Jerry Lee forever, and he oh, recorded shit. a bunch of stuff there at Sun. 
That's I, hilarious. I couldn't stop watching him, <laughs> you know, look at the exhibits. But anyhow. It didn't ever come up. He just kind of hung out. Never came up. Wow. He went and bought a t-shirt even. <laughs> wow, that's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Got a hard for me not to buy a t-shirt. <laughs> right, <that>. hell yeah. <laughs> We used to like joke with friends. People would be like, "Oh, where are you playing tonight?" We'd be like, "Oh, the Ryman." That was like our like running joke when we first moved into town, you know. And then to actually like get to play it was like outstanding. And the cool thing about it too is that we'd done the they do the bluegrass nights at the Ryman in June, and they'll hire a band to play in the out front before they open the doors. And so we'd done that three or four times and become really good friends with like Brian, the manager over there, and. A bunch of the ushers knew us, and we were friends with the ushers and the house, house sound guy. And so, like, uh, we were like setting up on stage, and like, we had all these, this like hometown support from like all these people that work at the Ryman. They were like, Oh, the Howland brothers are on stage, like, because they've always seen us like out front, you know, or like, so it was really neat. It was like, you know, it was like a almost like a homecoming, you know, like, it, but man, that's one of the coolest stages I've ever played. And the fact that we got to play it the night of the David Lynch Foundation, and it was like Brandon Benson, Jack White, like Sean Colvin, like Jacob Dylan was there. Um, I can't even remember everybody. It was so many awesome people, but the experience of walking out on stage, like from the wing, and like you know, there was lots of people in suits and lots of people dressed nicely, you know. But the three of us walked out, and like people knew us. Like, I was like, oh, my God, <laughs> people knew who we are. You know, I thought, like, it would just be people talking. They wouldn't give a shit. Because, you know, openers, a lot of times, people don't give a shit, you know. And so, like, we started walking out, and people were, like, screaming and cheering. And I was like, whoa, it, like, sent chills down my spine. And I was, like, so nervous that it was going to be, like, my worst performance ever. But, like, by the time I got to center stage, I just felt so, like, empowered by the audience. And I was like, how's everybody doing? And the crowd was just like, Rah! And I was like, oh, and from that moment on, we were just like full gung-ho through the whole set, you know, like, it was definitely one of the, like, biggest highlights of my, like, you know, performing career to date, for sure. We went backstage at the big, the big stage, you know, have you been up there in Winnipeg? It's beautiful, man, it's like, there's like nine stages, and each stage has this, like, beautiful canopy, it's like a covered wagon turned on its side that's what the canopy is built like and it's perfect it's like perfect for the sound and every sound guy is like the best sound guy you've ever had and every stage has two or three hundred people happily sitting waiting for you to play if if you want them to dance they're all up dancing if you want them to sing with you like it's just like the coolest most respectful crowds ever and like whereas most festivals if everyone's got an instrument or a guitar no one had an instrument there so like if you're walking around with your instrument people are like wow, there's there's one of them, you know, like, you just, like, get this feeling of, like, pure respect, that, like, you don't get a lot of places, you know, like, as a musician, especially, you know, people are like, oh, there's that scumbag again, you know, but, yeah, before we got to hang out in the, the green room backstage, and Dr. John came walking out of his dressing room, and he was in a full purple suit, like, it looked like, I don't know, some sort of sweet fabric, and he had, like, a big feather come out of his hat, and he had his, like, big cane, and he was just chilling, you know, like, he seemed, like, very sweet, you know, like, I said hi to him, but not much, I got to hang with his band a bunch, the Night Trippers, they were all real cool, they knew of us, they knew of the Holland Brothers, and they were, like, talking about my slide banjo, and, like, it was pretty neat that they even had any idea who we were, but so we got up, and we played the set, and it was, like, they had, like, the main stage, and then tweeners, like, they had these little, like, 
all us smaller acts would get to do a 20 minute set in between the big acts on the main stage. That's how we got to do that, you know? And so it was stressful because you had like, you know, the size of like this carpet right here. We all had to three squeeze into, and then like the stage dropped off. Like it was on the very edge of the stage, you know? So like, it was hilarious. It was just like real stressful. We got up and we rocked it and we were on the huge Megatron and there was probably 25,000 people, probably like 10,000 listened to us, you know, but like still that many people, you know, like cheering and dancing along. And it was so much energy that when I got off stage, I was like backstage and I just like, I literally, my whole body shook for like five minutes. And like, I looked over and there's Dr. John standing on his cane, like waiting to go out. And they were like, ladies and gentlemen. And I was like saying, they're like shaking. They're like, Dr. John. And, and he like, the band was already out there rocking. And he like slowly like, you know, walked out. But I was like, holy shit. That was like a pretty huge moment in my life. Like just knowing that I had just like that amount of energy is insane. Like 25,000 people. That's even if they didn't care who we were, they saw us. <laughs> and like our music was coming at them. Like that's like, that's just, you know. We broke down uh, outside of L.A. two years ago. We were just cruising along I-5, and it just started smoking real bad. And So we pulled off, and we thought it was the engine. We thought it was done. And uh, the people were like, well, there's this like little Mexican mechanic a mile down the road. We don't do transmission. We just do tire repairs. We're like, all right. So we like limped the van down there, and we pull up, and it's like this lot of dead cars and a garage and then a little canopy tent with a, his wife selling Italian ice, shaved ice. She's just happy as can be, sitting there in, like, 110 degrees. And he comes out with, like, black hands, you know, like his buddy. And he's he, like, looks it over. And then uh, I was freaking out, you know, because we're, like, 3,000 miles from home. Like, the van's the only thing we own, you know. <laughs> and, like, and uh, so, you know, I was scared. And he, like, comes around the back. And he's like, oh, yeah, you see all these spots on your back windshield? He's like, that's your transmission. That was It's been leaking it's all over your back windshield and we're like oh shit so he pops the hood and he pulls out the dipstick and he like starts laughing when he sees the the transmission dipstick and uh he says to jared the guitar player he's like i fix cars because it's in my heart he's like and then he takes the dipstick and he like pokes jared with it in the heart and he's like you play music because it is in your heart <laughs> he's like poking him with the dipstick <laughs> and he's like and your transmission is fucked it's completely fried he's like if you can make it to la that's awesome He's like, here's my number. If you don't make it, call me. I'll pick you up. And we made it somehow. We made it in. We pulled up to the Mint where we were playing, unloaded the gear, and there was an Amco right there. So we just rolled it into the Amco shop and and uh, were able to get another transmission put in. And, and Ben's sister lives in Venice Beach, so it, it like worked out. Somehow like angels were on our side that day, and like his sister just picked us up. And the van was done the next day. Like it worked out better than it should have. You know, like, you didn't even miss a gig. We didn't even miss a gig. We had to rent a van and drive from like San Diego to Sonoma County, and then back in like some other band's van. But it all worked out. We didn't miss one gig, and but it was scary. But that guy was like the highlight of it. Like that mechanic, you know, and his wife, and it was just such a hilarious like. We were so stressed out and freaked out, but at the same time, like, I can be that freaked out when this guy's just laughing at you, like, poking you in the chest, <laughs> you know, like, it made everything, like, much more chill. And He probably sees a band break down about once a week Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> right. The first time I remember meeting you guys was with my buddy Chet O'Keefe 
and we all went fishing somewhere outside of Nashville. That's right. And um, do you remember that at all? Yeah, but it wasn't a chat was living in that bus that he had converted into like a livable school bus. Yeah, he had no running water. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. They have a. I think he had a bucket that he would wash off with. Or something. Yeah. <laughs> did you guys live out there? No, we never, never did. No, that was the fr- only time I had been out there. It was that time we met you. You guys fish much still? Not, not too much. That was only maybe the third time I've ever fished in my life. Okay. I think I was one of the only people that caught a fish too that day. <laughs> Total luck, <laughs> beginner's luck. <laughs> that probably pissed me off. <laughs> we do love to get a, a line wet if we're if we have time. A lot of times we don't have time, but we were just up in Virginia. There's a sweet place called the Barnes of Rose Hill. They're in Berryville. It's like right on the line of Virginia and West Virginia. And these folks that like run this uh, venue they like put you up and then they were like sweet as hell man they like made us like steaks on the grill that night that morning they made us biscuits and gravy and then like we went grocery shopping together and they made this massive meal and during the middle of the day we just fished all day we hung out on this pond and it was killer yeah what'd you guys catch nothing (laughs) (laughs) nothing at all (laughs) there's a difference between fishing and catching yeah right I appreciate you stopping by, man. Yeah, I'm super glad I got to do one of these. I've been checked out for a while now. Oh, God. You get to do some uh, some badass folks come through here, man. I know. I, I'm doing the best I can. We'll yeah. Say. <laughs> I have to go fishing again sometime. Yeah, so. we definitely should go fishing. I'd like to thank everybody for listening in, and I'd like to thank Ian for stopping by my house here in East Nashville. You can find out everything you need to know about the Howland Brothers at thehowlandbrothers.com. If you'd like to help support this show, just go to otisgibbs.com and you can pick up a CD, a t-shirt, you can download any record I've ever made, you can buy one of my photographic prints, you can buy one of Amy's records, you can buy one of Amy's children's books, but anything that you buy, we'll mail from our living room to yours and we'll even put in a little thank you note. If you'd like to help out but you're a little short on cash, just go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. Leave a comment. Subscribe while you're there and you'll get a brand new episode free every Wednesday. But if you enjoy this show, if you enjoy my music, if you enjoy Amy's music, please take the time to tell a friend and help us spread the word. And if you'd like to send us a message, we'd love to hear from you. Just send it to info at otisgibbs.com. I'm Otis Gibbs. Thanks for giving a damn.